Welcome to the BID mini-series, The Real Leaders of Net Zero, where we talk with CEOs about what they're doing to move their companies and the world to net zero. I'm your host, Mark Weedman. In this episode, we're moving from land to sea to learn how Maersk, one of the largest shipping companies in the world, is leading the transformation of the shipping industry. We've talked to a lot of companies focused on bringing down their scope three emissions. That means the emissions from their supply chain, like shipping or transporting the goods. And that's where companies like Maersk come in. They're working on making their ships greener and more efficient. Let's hear about how they're doing it. Soren Skow has been the CEO of Maersk since 2016, and I am delighted that he is joining me from Maersk's offices in Copenhagen. Soren, welcome. Thank you. Soren, let's start by talking about Maersk. What is Maersk? Maersk is a very big global shipping, container shipping and container logistics company. We operate a global network of more than 700 ships. We are shipping around 12, 13 million containers around the world. It's about 15, 16% of global trade. We are headquartered in Denmark, relatively small country. Only about half a percentage point of our business is actually involving Denmark. The rest is truly global. So the U.S. is a huge market for us, China as well. We are present in 130 countries and we cover many more than that and really play an important role in terms of enabling our customers to sell their goods in whatever market that is relevant for them around the world. We can get there for relatively low cost. And also for those of our customers that buy stuff and resell it, we can enable them to buy from the most competitive suppliers and vendors around the world. That's really what we do. We're focused on decarbonization in this podcast series. Why is shipping and Maersk relevant? Well, shipping is, of course, the most environmentally way of moving goods around. But because of the scale of global trade, we do actually emit a lot of CO2. In the case of Maersk, we use 11, 12 million tons of fuel every year. So that's more or less the same as 80, 90 million barrels of oil. And then on top of that, we have all of the land side operations. So we are quite substantial emitter of CO2. And then therefore, we are clearly part of the problem. And we also want to be part of the solution. So let's dig in, however, to the efficiency of shipping, because often people think, well, something has been shipped a long way. It must have cost a lot of carbon relative to other transport mechanisms. Now, clearly, if you're shipping a pair of sneakers from Vietnam to New York, then if you have to drive five miles in your car down to the mall to buy them, you'll use more CO2 doing that than it'll have taken to ship them in a container ship all the way from Vietnam. And that's because of the size of the ships. The size of the whole global trade just means that carbon emissions or the fuel use per single pair of shoes per unit of goods is very, very low. Clearly, once we move to truck, it gets even worse with airplanes. So the mode of shipping is a very environmentally good way of moving things around. So five miles of driving in my car to pick up the sneakers that you've shipped from Indonesia actually uses more carbon. Today, how do you power your ships? So today, we're using a lot of heavy fuel oil to propel the ship forward. It's the fuel oil, which is, if you will, the least refined product of a barrel of oil. Actually, we have to heat the fuel before we can put it in the engine, otherwise it won't ignite. So it is really heavy fuel oil. And it's quite efficient for large combustion engines. It's also quite cost-effective. But of course, when you add up all the numbers, we still spend 8 or $9 billion a year on fuel. It's a big part of what we do. 
we have started the transition already. And today, this past quarter, we reached 3% of all of our containers being moved on biodiesel instead. So a carbon neutral fuel. That is, of course, a more expensive fuel for us, but a product that we are selling to our customers and that we see quite some uptake in. So journey towards carbon neutrality has started for Musk. So why does decarbonization matter for you? Well, first of all, it matters because we believe there's a global climate crisis. It's also very clear, given that we burn 11 or 12 million tons of fuel, that we are part of the problem. And we clearly also have to be part of the solution. Otherwise, nothing will change. We want to make a difference already this decade. And that's why we've started to develop carbon neutral products already that we can sell to our customers. But that's one side of the story. The other side of that story is there's actually a customer demand out there for carbon neutral logistics services, shipping services. If we take our top 200 customers around the world, that's pretty much any global brand that you can think of. It's pretty much any big retailer that you can think of, any big manufacturer of goods that you can think of, cars and so on. And more than two-thirds of our top 200 customers, they have themselves set science-based targets for how they want to become carbon neutral, many of them in 2050, some of them even before that. And most companies, they do have a large part of their emissions in so-called scope three. So do our customers, and we are our customers' scope three. They can only deliver on their commitments if we can provide them with carbon neutral products and services in the coming decades. So on the one hand, we know we are part of the problem. We want to be part of the solution. We believe there's a climate crisis. But on the other hand, there is also a market out there. There's a demand for carbon neutrality in products. So I think there's also a business opportunity there. So technology. Let's talk about technology that you see changing your shipping. You've got 600 ships today. Over time, how's that shipping fleet going to change? What technologies are you bullish on? And which ones do you think are actually unlikely to see the light of commercial production? So first of all, I won't spend much time on this, but of course, there's still a lot of energy efficiency to be had. Also in ships, like in buildings. So since 2008, we have reduced the amount of fuel we use per container ship by more than 40%. We expect we can get that to 60% by the end of this decade. Wait, I just want to clarify, Soren. You've reduced not per container, but per ship, 40 to 60%. No, per container we ship. Because you stack them really big and make the boats even bigger. Yeah, exactly. And employ any kind of energy-saving technology we can think of on both the ships. And also reduce speeds, which has also helped to lower the fuel bill. But going forward... At least for container shipping, we believe the answer is to burn, instead of the heavy fuel we burn today, to burn a clean fuel. And the clean fuel, to begin with, it's biodiesel, but that probably will not be able to scale. There's a lot of competition. What's biodiesel? Biodiesel, a fuel made from biomass. In the U.S., you make them from corn. So basically, the same stuff that you mix into your gasoline today. That biodiesel, that product, there's a lot of competition. It can also be used to be refined into aviation fuel and so on. So there are others that are willing to be able to pay more than we are in the long term. So it's not a scalable solution. The next thing we will be moving to is using green alcohol or green methanol, to be precise, which we can also, with some modifications, we can burn in a traditional combustion engine in a ship. And green methanol can be used with a starting point of renewable power, sun or wind which we use to split water H2O into H2O, so the hydrogen, and the O on its side. And the hydrogen is 
relatively easy to reform to methanol and alcohol, which we can then burn on board the ships. And that technology is well understood, but it needs to scale. And that's the path we're going down. I think this is important just to capture. It starts with green hydrogen. All of what you're going to do beyond biodiesel starts with taking some form of renewable, non-carbon emitting electricity, splitting water and getting hydrogen. And that's interesting because we're seeing in lots of other industries the use of hydrogen, whether it's production of fertilizer or we're actually going to be powering fuel cells. So now you've got the hydrogen. Now, how do you think about using that in your ships of the future? So in order to get it to become methanol, you actually have to add back CO2. And of course, in order for that to be green, it has to be from a biogenic source. So from biomass or from municipal waste or things like that. Then you make the methanol. I'm not a chemist, so I, I won't be able to explain all the details in this. But as I understand it, it's a fairly well understood and old technology to do that. But obviously, it will benefit from scaling so that we can get the cost down. The hydrogen, as you point out, can be used to a lot of things. And one of the obvious things is also quite easy to reform into ammonia. And actually, there's a case also for using ammonia as a shipping fuel. When we get further towards the end of this decade, we expect that the engine manufacturers will be able to provide engines that can run on ammonia. There's at least three doors we can walk through you've just laid out. We could use the hydrogen itself. You could reform it into methanol or wood alcohol, or you can turn it into ammonia. How do you think about those technologies and the pros and cons today? So for shipping, we're pretty sure that hydrogen in a fuel cell is not going to be a technology that's going to work anytime soon for shipping, for many reasons, including the fact you have to keep the hydrogen under extreme low temperatures and so on, and all of that takes space on board a ship. Today, already here in 2022, we can buy ship engines that run on methanol. So that's the go-to technology if you want to have an impact this decade. Towards the end of the decade, we expect to be able to use ammonia in the engines. That's probably, in all likelihood, is going to be a cheaper way than methanol, in particular, because you don't have to worry about biogenic CO2. So maybe we'll transition to that fuel in the 2030s. But what I'm saying to my team all the time, we don't want to get perfect, get in the way of good. So we're going to go ahead with what we know can work now. And if we have to pivot 10 years from now, then we'll pivot 10 years from now. Soren, my team teases me all the time because I quote Voltaire on don't let the best become the enemy of the good for that, because let's get on with what we can do now. Have you ordered any vessels that will work with methanol? Yeah, so we have started already last year. So every ship that we build from now on will have the capability of using green methanol. Our total order is now up to 18 full-sized container ships. So we're building up the fleet. We'll have the first single ship next year, but from 2024 onwards, we will have that green fuel capability in a sizable number of ships. And that's why I'm in a bit of a hurry to find fuel for these ships. Market opportunity there. Soren, how long does a container ship last? About 25 years. So the decisions you're making now and that the industry's making are actually going to drive the fuel usage for the next 25 years. I think so. I mean, obviously, this is one of the reasons for why people would like to wait for the perfect solution in ammonia and so on. But it may come at the end of the decade, but it may also not come at the end of the decade. It's non-trivial safety issues to deal with. Ammonia is poisonous. It's super toxic. If you breathe it, you die. If you put it in the water, the fish die. 
you really have to think very carefully about this. I mean, these are engineering problems and they're also solvable. Lots of liquid ammonia is transported around in the world in gas carriers, so it can be solved. But it's just as a fuel, those problems have not been solved. How do you think about scaling the production of fuels for your ships? You've talked about potentially getting involved really to catalyze activity. But for you, the constraint here is if you don't have the fuel and you don't have the fuel in the right place, it's really difficult to move a ship around. So how are you thinking about stimulating that? The first thing we have done is, of course, try to create a market by ordering some ships. I mean, for a little while, we had this chicken and egg situation that, well, there was nobody producing green fuels because no ships were using it. And there were no ships using green fuel because you didn't get anything. We took the leap there and said, now we're going to order some ships to start create a market. But it's going to take more than that. We're willing to sign these offtake agreements. And then, of course, we are looking to see where are the most competitive places in the world to produce green fuel. And that's really where the renewable electricity is the cheapest to produce. So it's the countries that have a lot of sun or wind, in best case, both. And then the countries where there's a good regulatory environment. And I have to say what the U.S. government has just done in the new acts around inflation, which is really about green hydrogen subsidies, has meant that the U.S. is really becoming a very interesting destination for investments into production of green hydrogen. It's really massive what is going on. And I think a lot of this fuel has the potential to be produced in the U.S., Already today, places like Texas are pretty competitive when it comes to renewable power to begin with. And now we have this Inflation Limitation Act on top to really help things along. But there are many other countries also where it's very cost-effective to produce renewable energy. About two-thirds, as I understand it, of the cost of a ton of fuel is really the cost of the renewable power. Maersk and you have helped to lead not just your firm, but the industry. Talk about what you've done with the industry. First of all, we set out as the first in our industry with a 2050 carbon neutrality target in 2018, at a time where we actually didn't have much clue on how we were going to deliver on that. And then what we have also done, or actually our main shareholder, which is ultimately a foundation, has helped us fund a research institute here in Copenhagen that's actually doing a lot of technical research into the different fuel types, the different engine types. And that's one of the reasons for why we know that methanol is a good technical pathway for us. And we decided quite deliberately that we wanted to democratize that knowledge so that we could get the whole industry moving as quickly as possible. And this is an independent research institution. They're sharing their knowledge There are lots of partners that have signed up and are contributing, engine manufacturers, shipping companies, oil companies, and so on. So there's really a body of knowledge there to figure out two things, the technical pathways for decarbonization of shipping, one, and two, the regulatory pathway. Because one thing is that we know how we, from a technical point of view, can decarbonize, but we also need a way of making sure that there's an approximate level playing field around the world in this so that companies can compete in a fair way around decarbonization. What's the biggest uncertainty that you see in your own decarbonization path over the next 10 years? So right now, it is really about how we get the fuel, how we get enough of it, and how do we get it to scale in a way where we can see the extra prices coming down. Today, we have a large number of quite progressive customers that are willing to pay a premium for a carbon neutral product. But they are also all of them saying, look, this is not something we see ourselves doing forever. 
this is something we see ourselves doing while you guys figure out how you scale and get the cost down, just as what has happened on wind and solar and so on. I'm confident that we will also get there. What should the role of capital be in helping the transition for you, for the industry? Where can capital play a constructive role? Look, I think we have to understand that the task here is of a gigantic scale from a capital point of view. Today, we have a global energy system that's very much driven by the oil companies or integrated by the oil companies, right? They find the oil in the ground, they get it out of the ground, they put it into a pipeline, into a refinery, and then the refinery delivers oil products that we can all consume in our cars or trucks or ships. We're talking about replacing that system. It takes billions or trillions, actually, to build out a new energy system. And there, of course, even though we often talk about, well, there's plenty of capital out there. I mean, the scale of this is enormous. Secondly, a lot of this production, if it has to be cost-efficient, will have to happen in developing countries where you have the best conditions for solar or wind. North Africa, Saudi, but of course also in the U.S., but there are some, if you will, country risk considerations that capital also have to do. I think there will be a huge role for capital to play in terms of getting some of these projects off the ground and in the early stage being willing to invest in a project where the product that will come out of it will be higher priced than the product it's going to replace and therefore requires some leap of faith that this is actually going to work in the long term. Soren, last question. What do you think is the single most important thing that needs to happen to get the world to net zero? I mean, there are many things that need to happen. I think one of the really good things that is happening right now is that big business has really engaged in the last couple of years and really coming up with solutions, starting to invest real money in this agenda, and also starting to have some commercial strategies that are meaningful. Because this is not just about doing good. It is also about serving a market need that is out there. And we have to think about it in that context more than in the context of this is something I have to do because I have to save the planet. We really all have to think about this also as an opportunity. And I think that's quite well understood, if you will, in big business. I would like to see small and medium-sized enterprises embrace the agenda in the same way and dare to go out there and do these things. Then I think we can move faster. Clearly, the populations around the world get it. And certainly the younger people around the world see the risk of the climate crisis and wants to do something about it. And the politicians also broadly are moving in this direction. They just witnessed the, by the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. And of course, EU is big on this. And for a lot of developing countries, this is actually a huge opportunity. So I think probably the most important thing that can happen now is small and medium-sized businesses also engage in the agenda. Soren Skull, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. This material is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice, a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to purchase or sell any securities, funds or strategies to any person in any jurisdiction in which an offer, solicitation, purchase or sale would be unlawful under the securities laws of such jurisdiction. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change without notice. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risks. BlackRock does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. For more information, visit blackrock.com forward slash the bid.